So is somebody going to tell me that Tiger King ended after seven episodes? I was in such a rush to catch up. And I was really, really afraid to see what was going to happen by episode 10. If you don't know Tiger King, it's what happens to you when you grow up gay in the wrong part of the country in the 1970s. Hopefully we're a lot better now. My name is Robbie Hart, and we're out of office. We'll come back for Indian summer. We'll come back for Indian Hello, everyone. It is Saturday, April 18th. My name is Robbie Hart, and this is Out of Office. Today, we have, uh, they're all very special guests, but some of you know him as the executive producer of The Meg. Some of you know him as the executive producer of Cowboys vs. Aliens. Some of you know him as the uh, professor for the business of entertainment, a UCLA uh, course that he teaches. I personally know him as the man that I met while he was bringing coffee to my wife at Culver Marina Little League. First time I met him, he's actually being a better husband to my wife than I was. And he maintained that throughout the entire season. Uh, everyone, this is Randy Greenberg. Hi, everybody. And, and most of you don't know me at all, so that's okay, too. <laughs> but they know your work, so... <laughs> Well, th- well, thanks for being here. Uh, great to have you. This is episode one, by the way. Again, what we're here to talk about uh, at Out of Office is really about work and how we're all working and what we're learning from this pretty incredible time that we are part of, incredible in, in all the worst ways, and I think some pretty good ways as well. So maybe you can just start by telling everyone a little bit about who you are, where you came from, what you do, <laughs> and that kind of thing. I've been in the film business now for three decades. Um, it's something I always wanted to do as a kid growing up in Omaha, Nebraska. I always wanted to be in the film business, always wanted to be a film producer. I started off as an accounting intern at Warner Brothers. I then became a, uh, an assistant manager at a movie theater, babysitting high school students. Back before there was electronic ticketing, it was still the ticket, the ticket reels, right? Um, and, uh, I did that for a while, and then I went to work as the office slave at an entertainment PR company, Um, and that was back in the late 80s when it was the go-go days, like any, but you could get a job in the the film entertainment business, you know, you know, just by walking down the street, you could get a job. There were so many jobs available, and and, uh, that was the, that was the exploding world of video, and um, that was a time period when I, I was out of college and I sent out like 200 cover letters and resumes and, and went on a couple of dozen interviews, and got offered multiple jobs. And the one I chose was at this PR company um, because the previous three, two or three people, I can't remember anymore, that were in the, the office slave position had been promoted within about six months. And I only had, I, I, and everybody made the same, in, in the entry level jobs in Hollywood, we're all the same. 1200 bucks a month, that was it. Everybody made the same amount of money. So I couldn't really live on that. I needed about 1400 and I don't know, 1400, 1500 bucks. So I'd saved about two grand, maybe. I can't even remember anymore. It wasn't much. And um, so I knew that I could live for about six months, but I was really hoping that within three months I'd be promoted and, and that's what I shot for. And 
sure enough, I, I took that job and I did, I scrubbed the floors. I did the faxes. I ran coffee. I got, I, I got a, a bottle of wine every day for the president of the office at five o'clock. She would have a bottle of wine before she went home. And, um, you know, and I, I mean, I was there at seven o'clock in the morning and I, and I left at seven, eight o'clock at night. And I was living, when I first got the job, I was living down in Irvine and commuting to Beverly Hills every day, which was an hour and 15 minutes both ways. I left at six o'clock in the morning. I, I, let, I have to leave before six to get to Beverly Hills by about 7.15. If I, la- if I left after six o'clock, I wouldn't get there until eight. So um, luckily enough, uh, some friends I knew, some fraternity brothers of mine, uh, about four or five months into the job, uh, they wound up renting a townhouse and they needed a third it was great and it was only like six blocks from the office so i went from an hour and 15 minute commute to about you know like a not even a 15 minute walk it was awesome that's a lucky break hey oh it was yeah, listen i i it, it's the story of my career is the lucky break so my fraternity brother's dad was at warner's and i got an internship that way and then the pr company i got on my own and then work myself up within a, within a few months. The president of the office said her secretary decided to leave, and she offered me the position of her secretary, and I turned it down. And I said, "I'm thank you very much. I'll be your assistant, but you got to give me more work. Like I, I know what your I know what your secretary does, but I can do a lot more." And she, you know, luckily, you know, she she gave me a shot, and. Uh, I wound up staying in that job for five more, five and a half more years. The first movie I worked on was Field of Dreams. And I worked on Basic Instinct and Total Recall and Terminator 2 and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves and a ton of other movies. And it was, it was a great time. And then one of my clients uh, went to work at MGM. And this client of mine asked if I wanted to come over and work at MGM. And she said, if you're interested, let me know. I said, of course I am. I met the heads of worldwide marketing and distribution, and I thought I was going over to be um, like a director of international publicity, and I wound up being the VP of international marketing. And uh, I was there for five years. That was the resurrection of James Bond, Get Shorty, GoldenEye, The Birdcage, Thomas Crown Affair. It was a great time. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, then, and then I went to work for uh, a dot-com company at the height of the dot-com bubble up in San Francisco. I'd always wanted to live there. My wife had gone to school there. We had friends there. We were there for less than a year. The whole thing didn't work out and came back and Universal was looking for a head of international theatrical. A friend of mine was over there. I got the job being the head of the international theatrical group with 700 employees around the world, 35 offices. When I was brought in, they were losing $200 million a year, $250 million a year. I was brought in to kind of turn it around. Um, I had four years to do it, did it in two and a half. They moved the entire operation to London. I didn't want to move there. I had a young family at the time. So we stayed. I opened up my own consultancy. And my first client was a uh, a comic book company that then turned out Cowboys and Aliens in a movie called Dylan Dog, Dead of Night. I went to work in the comic book company as the head of the film and TV group, as well as uh, head of marketing. And I went there because I had met the general counsel and I wanted to learn business affairs. That's what I wanted to learn. I, that, the kind of 
the legal aspect of rights and slicing and dicing comic book rights was really interesting to me. So I got to do that. At, I got to learn that at the same time. I then went into the VC world uh, and opened up a talent agency with a couple of VC companies and left that after realizing that being in the talent agency business was not what I wanted to do. Um, but I founded a talent agency and then I went into back into the producing world and and I was fortunate enough, my wife's literary agent uh, was the same literary agent for the writer, uh, uh, for the author of Meg. And um, the producer who had optioned those rights was looking for somebody with my skill set. We met, hit it off. Uh, she hired me to be the executive producer on the picture. And that's kind of how I got to, you know, wh where we're at right now today. Uh, but, you know, I sit in an office, as we're talking about at an office, um, I worked at the kitchen, at the dining room table for two and a half, three years, actually longer than that, maybe about six, but, and that was fine. But there was always that random thing, right? My wife would come in, she works from home as well. She's an author, illustrator, and uh, an and artist. And she'd come in from her studio. She had her own space. So she would always come in and it was really hard to concentrate. So she kind of got it after a while. And somehow, and I don't know how this happened, but she came in one day in, in spring of 16. I was at the dining room table. Meg had not started yet. We were, we just lost our director. We were getting another director. We were hoping to land Jason. We were trying to close the distribution agreement. And my wife just looked at me and she said, I'm going to build you an office. So here I am now talking to you from an office that my wife built for me. And it's awesome. <laughs> so, okay. So, so that's awesome. Thank you so much for, uh, for all that. And there's so many things that I kind of want to follow up on, but let's go back to the beginning. Omaha, Nebraska. Yeah. How did you know you wanted to be in working movies? Um, so my parents both worked, I, you know, I was the latchkey kid, right? I mean, we're, you know, so many of us, so many people my age, I mean, I'm, I'm in my early fifties and, you know, so many people my age were latchkey kids. Both of their parents worked. We had a key to the house. We came in after school. There was no after school programs, right? We walked right. home, right? We were able to walk home after school without supervision and, um, got home, you know, and, and, and I, I watched television all the time and, and I watched stuff that I didn't like to find out what, like, I mean, to not, not because I was stupid, but I guess I was trying to learn, like, why didn't I like it? Why didn't it work? And then, and then I would take the TV guide that the, the TV guide had the fall preview issue, right? The Absolutely. first week of September, they had that big, Cute. thick fall, you know, for most people don't realize that at one point in time, the TV guide was the largest selling weekly magazine ever with like 25 million copies right and the fall preview guide which was super thick would have a listing of every single show that was about to start and I would go through and I would write yes it's going to succeed or no it wouldn't succeed and I kept those for a long time I don't know they're like in a box somewhere right <laughs> but, but I would always look back and I would get like nine out of ten right and wow. and and then, and then in Omaha, Nebraska, we had one of the first multiplex movie theaters in the world. It was a sixplex, an AMC sixplex. Uh, it's called the Six West. 
mm-hmm. at Westroads, which was this massive shopping center. And I would go and see everything. Everything that came out was there. Right. Um, and I just loved the movies. And and I, I knew at some point in time in my life I was going to turn 40. And obviously, I'm well past that now. Um, and I didn't want to look back and say I could have, would have, should have. And it was really important to me to come out and try it. So after I graduated college, I came out here and I slept on my brother's couch for for nine months and to try to make it work. And, you know, here I am 31 years later, I'm still here. And, and, uh, and it's, it, it, my job doesn't feel like a job. doesn't feel like work. So it's fun. I'm jealous. I'm jealous. So tell me a little bit about what an executive producer does. I mean, I, I think probably a lot of people have similar aspirations of some kind, even if they can't articulate it fully. Uh, good question. My wife still asks the same question. If you ask her what I do, she turns around and says, I don't know what he does. Um, we've been married for 24, 25 years. Um, so uh, an executive producer is kind of the business end of film. And as a co-executive producer on television, I'm a non-writing business end of television projects. Producers are either creative or business or a combination of both. And the producer title is really reserved to the producers that spend the majority of time, excuse me, working on character and story and how the characters interact and the actual script itself. And and some producers are really good at that and some producers aren't. I don't have that focus in story and structure and character to be able to really see that on the written page. I'm not able to do that. So I look at production from the standpoint of how much money is it going to cost to make this? Where can we shoot it? What tax incentives are there? When do we need to shoot it? How long is it going to take us to shoot it? Where can we get the money? What type of uh, directors or who or and what actor or actresses do we need to engage in order to put a package together that looks like it's going to be a really good project that someone either wants to finance or someone wants to distribute. And on top of that, the two other things that I, that I, that I do are financial analysis of the opportunity using historic, uh, historical data, comparative data, what's currently going on in the marketplace. Um, so I can do algorithms and, and waterfall and that financial analysis, although I'm not a, an accountant. And I also, having learned business affairs, being at the comic book company um, for the number of years, and this is 15, 16, 17 years ago, that over the years I've done a lot of negotiating for either acquisitions, talent deals, guild deals, uh, distribution deals, financing deals, bank deals, what have you, that um, that I do a lot of, I, I can do a lot of the negotiations and legal paperwork always working with a an attorney behind me uh but i but i can help move those projects along so as an executive producer i'm always looking for good projects that uh, feel like they can be sold and that they have a good story um a reason for being and a reason for someone to actually need to go see it whether it's leaving the house and going to the movie theater or deciding to watch you know that particular project on television or streaming or what have you, but on a television type of device versus watching something else. Um, I believe I have a pretty good picker. 
nine out of ten, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. I want to I want to see yeah. these re, these these TV guys because like like Randy said everyone I mean seriously TV guy was a big deal back when we didn't have the internet we only had print print media to go along with our video media and our audio media right it's so a massive money maker oh gosh right and that's like it's it's been interesting for me to see in my career watch all of those publishing houses and uh watching them morph and adapt or just go away and everyone diffuses to other parts of the economy. Right. Which is the way, you know, the way we evolve. So, so you also, of course, you you talked about all this experience you've gotten in the business side of things. That's what an executive producer does. That's not doing the creative stuff. So you're also teaching a course for UCLA business of entertainment. Talk to us about that. Thanks. Um, A friend of mine had started this course uh, at another university and I had been a guest speaker. This is probably this is well over a decade ago. It's probably more like 15, 16 years ago. And, um, and it was more of a, a class that was about uh, delivery and technical delivery of elements from a theatrical standpoint into home entertainment and then to television. Because there are all sorts of technical standards that material must meet for delivery then to, to the exhibitors to the home entertainment window or to the television broadcasters when they're when they're showing material. And I came in to talk about kind of the 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 behind the scenes machinations of like an exec what an executive producer does. And then this class wound up at UCLA and this friend of mine was doing it at UCLA and then he got too busy and called me and he said, "Would you be willing to take this class over?" And if so, then I want you to meet my boss in administration who you need to talk to. So I met them and I said, like, look, I like the idea of this course, but it's not like I'm not the technical guy to take this over. But if you want to change it into the business aspect of product that is both operational, financial, distribution oriented, accounting oriented, how deal flow works, how the waterfalls work, and how people make money, I can do that. And I was fortunate. They said, why not? Let's try it. That was 12 years ago, 11 years ago. And I've been teaching the class. It's taught three quarters out of four. I teach it for two of those three. I take a break in between. And I really like it. And it's really the behind the scenes machinations of of not Hollywood, but of entertainment. It's the idea of how do you take a script, make it into what we call a piece of IP, and then take that IP and license it, and how do you make money off of that, and what does the licensing mean, what rights are there, how does theatrical distribution work, how does home entertainment work, how does streaming work, how does television work, Um, how do those deals work, how does the money flow Where's the future in all of this? And, and in the end, as, as filmmakers or writers or actors or directors or producers, how do you get paid? And, and, and not just paid when you make it, but how do those deals work long-term so that as, as a creator, that you have a better understanding of who's making money off of you and how you're making money and when to know when you're being cheated? <laughs> and listen, you know, it's like, we all think that the, the, and the creative side and the content and the stories really are super sexy and they are what draws everyone in. 
But at the end of the day, the houses sitting up there in Bel Air, you know, are not because of a sexy story per se. It's because of the business of motion pictures. It's that deal. Yeah. It's literally that deal. And uh, give you a good analogy of how deals can make money that um, on a project I was brought in to executive produce based on, was based on a previous medium, either a book or a a comic book or a book or whatever. And um, the, the current script, while it was based on the book, had characters and businesses that weren't in the book. So someone had made up new characters and new kind of entities that were in the script. And I asked the question of, well, who did that? And the producer told me, and I said, okay. I said, so then we're going to do a very quick one-page agreement that the person who provide, who came up with these is providing a one-picture license that these characters can be used for one picture and one picture only. And the producer asked me, well, why do you do that? Why wouldn't you put everything into the, 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 the business, the vehicle that has all the rights to the project? I said, because that way, you, because you created these, you have control over any subsequent productions. Sequels, prequels, spinoffs, remakes, televisions, licensing and merchandising, you control everything. And, and the person in the producer said to me, but we're going to need to give all those rights to the studio. I said, yes, but because you have this one page agreement, when you go to do that negotiation, you have leverage already to tell the studio, but the vehicle only has the ability to make one movie. I can't give you the rights to more movies unless you want to give me something else. Then I can go back. So it was leverage and that one page agreement, legal agreement, that I drafted, but agreed to, and you know, signed off and blessed, if you will, by a lawyer, by the lawyer, right? Let that producer control subsequent production rights, so the sequel rights, and was able to put that into the contract with the studio. So that producer controls the sequel rights with this, you know, away from the studio, and you know, simple stuff, but. That's how the business side, right? The business side and understanding the business side allowed that producer to be in control. Otherwise, the studio would have taken everything over and the producer would have no control. There you go. So so here we are now. I'm sure your people, your your friends are bored already. What's that? Your your listeners are bored of me already. They're not bored of you at all, Randy Greenberg. (laughs) Shame on you. Shame on you. So right now the world's, in standstill, but still moving. You're still out there in your office that your wife built for you. Um, it's awesome. <laughs> it is awesome. I I'm can thankful. see it. Listen, man, I am thankful every day. Every, oh, day, every day I walk out of here and I get in, and I'm like, I am so thankful to have my space. Yes. And, you, and it's nice to have people in your life that are amazing too. So, uh, but what, what's going on in your industry right now? What's happening? I mean, what's, you know, how is your world adapting to? our current state of affairs? Well, there's no production going on. I mean, there's no physical production going on on anything scripted. There's, you know, there's like one or two shows. I think there's a, they're all rise. There was one legal show that was trying to do uh, a script where everybody was acting towards their cameras on their computers or their phones. And they were trying to edit it together. And of course, we've seen the Saturday Night Live where everybody did their 
did their own thing. So there's, but in the, and then there's some late night, you know, and, and some of the, the net, network news, right? Cable news is being done that way. Yeah. But that's really it. Otherwise, all the scripted television is shut down. All the features are shut down. Um, so none of that's happening. The only thing that literally is happening right now, well, there's, there's three things I'll, I'll say. If you're in, if you're editing a movie, you can edit. Your editor is working from home. If you're scoring a movie, your composer's working from home. If you're looking for what we call ADR, uh, you can do AD automatic dialogue replacement, which meaning that that a line of dialogue didn't really work when you were shooting it. So as you want the actor to come in and do a, do the same line of dialogue to automatically replace it in the same scene. You can do that from home. Totally. You can do sound effects and stuff like that. All the technical things that can be done that are done on computer can be done in post-production can be done from home. But animation. In animation. And animation's working from home as well. Right. Most of the animators are on computers working from home. Right. Yeah. So there's a there's a, a television show that I'm co-executive producing now. It's an animated TV show for a streamer that'll come out in October of 21. Oh. We're on our, we're on, we're, uh, we finished six of 10 scripts. Uh, the seventh script will be delivered tomorrow. We're doing wire, we're doing all the various framing and all the backgrounds and stuff that's going on. So that's happening. Does that project have a finished name and all that, or is it still in its development stages? And you have it's not, no, it's, uh, it's, it, it, it is just not been announced. So therefore I'm not able to say what it is. Um, it's not my, my, it's not my place to be able to say that. Understood. Um, but, uh, and then the, so those two things are going on. And then the third thing that's going on is pitching is happening. So producers and write, writers are writing. So four things are going on. Writers are still writing because they work from home in their own spaces, wherever they have on their computers. They're doing, they can do that. They've been social distancing for years. They can still do it, right? <laughs> and then they've been practicing for, they've been practicing for this moment. Uh, and then the other thing that's going on is pitching, pitching of projects and, and you know, because we can do that just like we're doing now. Right. We can do it via Zoom. And there's a lot of meetings going on with Zoom. Yeah. Um, right. Those are the four things in production that are kind of going on. And then the other thing that's going on is the producers, the production executives and the network executives, and the streaming and the, and the cable executives are all dealing with their physical production people trying to figure out what does a film set or what does a television set look like when we can get back to shooting. And that's all being decided now. Um, but, you know, in, in by marketing and distribution, theatrically, they're all sitting out, right? They're, they're, watching, they're watching the eight hours of Netflix every day or whatever it is, right? Well, that makes sense, right? So... Well, we'll all stay tuned to see what happens there. So why don't we switch gears? Tell us what teaching's been like from a distance. Yeah, I mean, this is, I, I several years ago, I got asked to teach an online class and I turned it down. And I, and I just like, it's not what I, I love being in front of students. And and my students range in age. I mean, I'm, I'm at UCLA Extension. So they range in age from, you know, 22 to 60. So this is the first time I've had to take my, you know, I, you know, and my classes are anywhere from 50 students to 100 students. And I really enjoy being in front, seeing their faces and interacting them and having them talk like, you know, and ask questions on the fly. And, you know, and, and I don't really have a really rigid classroom. 
And online, you have to be rigid. You can't have 50 microphones open because you can't hear. They can't hear you. I'm hearing the wind blow and the dog bark and the, the phone ring and somebody else in the back. Like, you can't do that. So it's a whole new experience. Um, I have to say, it's, it's, I think it's, it is more draining to be online as, a, as an instructor for me than to be in front of the students. Um, the concentration level is really just you and the computer right here. And even though I can see the questions as they pop up data, you know, on the stream of, of questions, and I can see my students right as well, um, it, it, the concentration that it takes to, to keep on track with the presentation or the guest lecture or whatever is so much more than, or, or it, maybe it's just different muscles, but I find myself so exhausted after three hours of doing this online versus three hours in the classroom. Um, I can't say, like, I like it, but I, I don't like it as much. Um, and I, I really feel a disconnect with my students that I, that I didn't, that I didn't feel before. That's for sure. Yeah. So we've got, I know we've got another professor from Penn state who we're going to have in a later episode. Um, one of my, one of the teachers at my son's school, a PhD in history, actually, she's amazing. Uh, I'll be curious to hear what they say because they're yeah. both pretty, really dynamic individuals that I know are just amazing, amazing educators. And I imagine you're the same, frankly. Um, I don't know, but I think that's a stretch, but, but that, I don't think so. No, no. The way you describe it makes me think that that's the case. So, but I'm, you know, I'm surprised. I am surprised about, I, I'm surprised about how efficient the online education process can be. Okay. That's interesting. Tell me more. What do you mean? I, I there's in having to be, um, in having to be more concentrated and, and specific because you don't really have the interaction like you did with students in, in real time that, or, or face-to-face -face, that I find that I, I have to be far more efficient with my wording um, because there is no, there's no nuance with my hand gestures or my face or, or my posture. Um, and there just is, there's an in-person uh, communication that happens Absolutely. that isn't, that isn't verbal, that is physical, that gives another dynamic to the information right. that I don't think that students are getting versus when they're seeing my little. That's head. interesting. Yeah. It's almost like being more precise with what you're saying. Yeah. Or, but I also worry that they're missing some of the nuance of how I feel or how, what I'm trying to communicate. And I find that I'm, I'm making more of an effort to communicate with my students outside of the classroom because we, I do it live. So that's kind of cool, but, but doing it from home, I mean, I saved on the commute time, oh. but it's been a lot more work. It's been a lot more work for me to work with my guest speakers and guest lecturers and my presentations to make sure that they're, that they work yeah. uh, technologically, yeah. right. That the whole aspect works technologically right. from, guest Q and A's and all of that from being at home, but, it, but it, it works. Yeah. It's just sure, different. Sure. Works. That's, that's, yeah, that's so interesting. Is there anything you're seeing that you think is going to stick any way of doing things differently? You mentioned earlier 
trying to understand what a film set or a TV set looks like in six months, right? But is there anything that you think we're learning from this that could stick around and be a a permanent thing? Or is it just going to be until we get back to normal, normal? Um, You know, there there are definitely some... There are definitely some things we can learn from from the Spanish flu of you know 1917, 1918, 1919, because um, there was a film business back then. It wasn't it wasn't talkies, right? But there were the silent movies. Um, but there was a there was a business and there was an industry, and, um, and and theaters, Nickelodeons, and theaters were shut down uh, because of it. So this is this is a, but there was no other outlet, right? The only other outlet was radio, and right and and. And they didn't have the technological availability for people to be at home and do radio like we do, like we do, like we're doing right, right now, which exactly. is exactly basically radio, right? And and we didn't have the technological or the or the medical understanding like we do now of what what it really meant and what are the things that we could implement in order to to make it work. And we had a lot more people who were dead, <laughs> so or or who died. I mean, a lot more who died, and it's tragically. Um, but I mean, what what we're seeing now, and I'm sure it's going to change because ten days ago we weren't we even having this conversation, and now we're having this conversation. Yeah. So, you know, we know that there's to be another line item in the budget, right? Which will be for medical, and which we've really ne- like we had you 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 would have a medical staff person, right, who was just there in case of an emergency. That right. was it, right? You know, that was it. And it came with a lot of times with your police officers who were there for, you know, crowd control or or safety right, or whatever. Right. right. So now you're going to have a whole department which will be medical because somebody will be taking temperatures of every person every day. Somebody will giving begin be giving whatever the test right. every single day. And then what do you do when you find that somebody has the coronavirus, mm-hmm. right? This is what we're trying to figure out now. It's all uncharted territory yet. How far away from the camera do the actors need to be, right? Will we see intimacy scenes gone, right? Will we shoot close scenes closer with the camera, but the actors will be far apart? I, I don't know. I, none of this, will, all the, will everybody behind the scenes be wearing masks and gloves? I don't think know. Your, you think your right? neighbors up in the valley might have any experience with things like this? <laughs> they do. They they do. In fact, you know that's a that's a, they they do, but they only had to worry about the yep. the actual yep. in front of the camera people. Right. Yes. Right? For those of you that aren't catching up, Robbie's talking about the 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 X-rated porno uh, people, but they never had to worry about the people behind right. the scenes, right? right? You wouldn't be shut down because somebody right. had it. But certainly the HIV AIDS crisis was a big deal for that industry, Absolutely. of course. <laughs> Absolutely. They had to work on it. That's, that's very true, right? But, I mean, all of these things we're literally starting to talk about now. And it really comes down to, to be honest, sadly, it comes down to yeah. money. Where's the money for, like, on productions that were shut down now that then have to go back into production, there's no line item for this now. How much is this going to cost? How, how, and not only how much is this going to cost, how is this going to slow down current production? Right. Current production at zero. So, yeah, I mean, 
we're used to shooting, you know, say two or three, you know, somewhere between a page and a half to three pages a day. Right. right. Just now only a page uh, a day. Right. So all of a sudden you've added more days to your shoot. That's more money. Where does that money come from on productions that are already scheduled? Right? All of this is unknown. Nobody knows. <laughs> but but we're gonna get there, right? We're we're gonna get there. It's just gonna take us. Yeah. I mean, right now everything takes I I think three and a half times as long as it used to. That, that's my current estimate. All I know is that I get maybe like, I don't know, a sixth as much done every day, it feels like, or something. Well, but I think that's because of, I could say from my standpoint, my business life and what I do really hasn't changed yeah. because I have a home office. I'm used to right. working at home. I have a routine of working at home. All of that is, is really stayed the same aside from the fact that I have, I have a, a college, a college student and a seventh grader at home doing their work online. And, and I can't leave and go to meetings and do that kind of thing, but pretty much it's, it stayed the same, except that everybody I'm dealing with is now at home and they were used to going most everybody right the other producers and and directors and actors you know they don't go to offices they work right. from home right right you know but the production executives and the studio executives the networks and you know and and financiers you know on and distributors they all had office jobs so they're all now home and we're dealing with them getting used to being at home so that's kind of changed but for the most part most of my job has not changed, but I can't get answers. A lot of the last month, six, seven weeks has been things have just ground to a halt because investors are shy and not shy. They're concerned. They don't know if they want to put money into projects and, you know, buyers don't necessarily want to buy because they don't know what the audience really right. wants post. Absolutely. Right. You don't, you hard it's hard to measure demand when demand goes to zero quickly. It's hard to say what's going to be in six months. You know, there's not a lot of analogies for that. Yeah. Luckily for me, a lot, most of the projects that I'm working on, like Meg are things that would never happen. Right. Escapist entertainment. They're meant to be that they're meant to have fun. It's it's the kind of entertainment I always loved as a kid. And it's still the entertainment that I think that we all need now that allows us to get out of our heads and get out of the environments that we're in and just suspend, suspend belief and just have fun. Yeah. And, and that's so much of what I'm, I'm still going after and what I gravitate towards. Well, I think we need as much of that as we can possibly get right now. So, okay. Listen, Randy, thank you so much. Um, again, you. This has uh, been a wonderful conversation. I think everyone learned a tremendous amount about the motion picture business uh, and about uh, about Randy Greenberg. So if you uh, if you have great movie ideas, come to me. I'll go, I'll find Randy for you. No, you can find him. <laughs> Randy Greenberg at the Greenberg Group, I believe. Is that correct? That, that's uh, the correct name of your corporate Greenberg entity. GreenbergGroup.com. Greenberg Group. The GreenbergGroup.com. Green, no the. GreenbergGroup.com. Green, see, GreenbergGroup.com. I'm bad about that. Like, there's all these bands that I just add a the before, like, the cars. Now, like, it's cars actually, right? I'm known as the Greenberg Group, but there actually is a the Greenberg Group on, on the web, and I can't remember. Really <laughs> well, but they're no good. And you're They're no good, and you're the best. So, oh, please. Oh, please. Say again? <laughs> yes. They're no good, and Greenberg <laughs> is the best. So, listen, thank you so much. I miss you, man. 
the Meg is in early production, I guess, for the uh, for the sequel. So Meg two, we're still yeah. Meg, Meg two, excuse me, a couple years away, um, and other stuff that you can't describe because you don't own it, whatever. Lots of stuff coming from <laughs> Randy Greenberg in the next couple of years. Thank you so much, sir. And Thanks for having me. You are very welcome. So that's it, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, This has been uh, Robbie Hart. And until next time, we are all still out of office.